0: It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro.
1: Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody, in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. I am your host. Behind the scenes, as always, J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. And we always remind you as well, this is a CLNS Media Network podcast. Up to episode number 61, and it's a great story, Larry Farmer. Grew up in Denver, played basketball at UCLA, a member of three national championship teams. He went 89-1 and is his three years on the varsity team, played for some great teammates, including Bill Walton. We have some great stories about Bill Walton. Obviously, about his head coach, John Wooden, who won 10 championships at UCLA and such a great tactician as a coach. We hear some great stories about the first time and the last time that Larry Farmer had a chance to speak to John Wooden. Eventually going into coaching, Larry Farmer would coach at UCLA, other stops at Weber State and at Loyola Chicago as well. We get into all that with him. We also hear about Sister Jean when he was with Chicago and a great story about the team chaplain there who's made news recently as a big fan of the Ramblers from Loyola Chicago. Great episode here, great stories. It is the story of Larry Farmer, episode number 61 of In the Front Row. Larry, uh, it's an honor to have you with us here today. I appreciate you, you spending a little time with us. Uh, a lot to get into about your life and, and certainly about uh, your new book uh, that came out in February, Role of a Lifetime, that talks about uh, your, your playing career, also your coaching career as well. But let's get into how things started for you. Uh, born back in 1951, you grew up in Denver. Tell us about life in Denver back at that time and and where basketball was in your life early on. Right, right. A very close-knit family. Uh, uh, sports was always a
0: big part of, of my life. Uh, my mother and father preached academics, and so everything athletic had to come after everything academic. But I was a late starter with basketball. I started playing uh, basketball uh, in PE uh, in junior high school. And, you know, you think by today's standards, kids are pretty much well along in um and playing uh, AAU basketball by the time you get to junior high school. But I picked up the game late. And the first time I actually played uh, basketball where I was being coached, I was a sophomore in high school. So again, a a very late start. I had a very good foundation um, in terms of sports. I could, you know, I could run, I could jump pretty well. And because I started playing basketball late, I was a coach's dream. Uh, because I didn't have any of the habits that had already been formed because i have been playing for so long. So every coach that that uh, I was ever privileged to play for, the way they taught me how to play, the shortcuts that they told me how to, to play defense or offense or a system, I had to do it exactly that way in order to be successful. So throughout my career, I heard that said more often than not about me is that I was very coachable. And the reason for that is, because I was learning as I was as I was playing
1: yeah that's certainly a a good part there Uh, again kids these days some of them aren't coachable (laughs) is that something that helped you or or hindered you as you eventually went into coaching and you were doing the coaching to to young men oh it was absolutely a help uh, because going
0: in uh, as a coach understanding that everybody doesn't learn at the same pace you have experienced players, you have inexper- in, inexperienced players. And as a team, you're only going to be as good as that um, player, that worst player, uh, as far as contributing. And so you have to teach as hard to make sure that that player um, learns, especially if that player is one that's contributing in practice or certainly uh, contributing in a game. So that really prepared me for understanding patience and making sure that um, i made I I was very diligent in making sure that everybody understood exactly what it was uh, we were trying to accomplish.
1: 1966 to 69, you you play high school. You were uh, first-team All-State as a senior. So, again, you're coachable, but the talent as well had to kind of match up with that as well. What made basketball your sport, do you think? Uh, Because
0: of, you know, I'd gotten tall. Um, I was foot five when I left high school and I grew another inch at UCLA, but I was agile. Um, I could jump. I was quick. Coach wouldn't love size with quickness. And I think those combinations, um, and, and then, of course, because I was listening and doing everything that the coaches, my high school coach, and then getting to UCLA, I was doing everything as uh, at least trying to do exactly as the coach um, said. I was fundamentally sound and I think that really helped me as far as you know basketball and then moving forward with basketball. you know I could defend, I could rebound. I could score on the inside. you know I was a good medium range shooter. Um, I was aggressive. I could run the lane. So it was a combination of those things I think that really kind of helped me when I got to UCLA you know ultimately um, you know become a starter as a junior.
1: Well, again, you mentioned Coach Wood and John Wooden and UCLA. When they come recruiting you, you just say no to everybody else? Well, were there any other students <laughs> that came to you at that time?
0: Yes. You know, I was, uh, back in those days, recruiting was very regional. Um, and so I was getting recruited by all of the schools that ordinarily recruited, the Colorado area, you know, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, um, Wyoming, all of the Colorado schools. Um, but I had a very wise academic counselor. And she wanted to expand my recruiting. So we reached out to other schools, schools that I had an interest in. And one of those schools, uh, my dream school was UCLA. So UCLA didn't come recruiting me. I actually sent a letter. And back in those days, not a videotape or a link. It was an actual game film. And my transcript. Uh, As a high school senior, I sent that to UCLA. And it was at the end of my senior year. UCLA had been recruiting a very good player in Southern California, and that player had decided instead of going to UCLA, he would go to USC. So that left one scholarship open, and when they got my letter and watched the film, they liked what they saw, and so then I got recruited. But I probably took 15 trips, um, you know, whether they be local or out-of-state recruiting visits. You could take as many in those days as you wanted. And, um, but UCLA was my last visit and it would have been my last visit
1: had it been the first visit. (laughs) And and what was that first conversation like that you had with coach Wooden again, trying to get you to play for the Bruins?
0: I walked into his office. I'll never forget. It was on a Sunday and I, I got out there on Friday, spent Friday and Saturday with the assistant coaches and Sunday morning, I went into coach Wooden's office and you know, I knew what he looked like because I'd seen him, you know, on TV and I'd seen him on basketball, the cover of are bas- or inside of basketball magazines. And I was nervous when I shook his hand. Um, you know, his voice was firm, but friendly. And he sat back down behind his desk and I sat in a chair in front. Coach Wooden had a great big jar of jelly beans uh, on, on the top of his desk. And he goes, Why would you like some jelly beans? And I politely said no. But, you know, who could be afraid of a guy offering you jelly beans? And so and that really calmed me down. But when I talked to coach, he never talked about, you know, do you think you're good enough to play here? We talked about academics. He said, you know, hey, you're a good student. That would be expected of you if you come here. Uh, We talked about family. We talked briefly about religion. We talked about my aspirations. But it was really a conversation where I think he was getting to know me. And I, I remember when we finished talking and I got up to leave, I hadn't formally been offered a scholarship yet. So I thought, well, maybe I said something wrong and coach did not like me. But it was shortly after that, uh, that uh, Gary Cunningham and Denny Crumb, Denny Crumb, who later went on to be a Hall of Fame coach at Louisville. He was an assistant at UCLA when I got with them and, and they were taking me to the airport. You know, that's when the formal uh, offer was made. So it, it didn't take long to make that decision.
1: Started with the jelly beans and, and ended with a, an author <laughs> at some point there. That's, that's great. That's a great story. So, so, you go there 1969, 1970, still at a time where you're not allowed to play as a freshman, right? So, so what was that freshman like for you? You couldn't play with the, you know, with a varsity team that went on to win a national championship that year, uh, beating Jacksonville uh, with the uh, artist Gilmore, who we had on previously as a guest. Yes, yes. We, um,
0: uh, they only give out one uh, freshman award at UCLA, um, the Seymour Armand Award, freshman of the year. And you can only imagine the names on that trophy, what it reads like. And um, But I was awarded uh, that trophy at the end of, of our freshman year. And I went home to Denver and I watched that Jacksonville game like everybody else did on national TV. It was really, uh, at least for me, because I was on the UCLA. I was on. The UCLA team, but I wasn't on the varsity team. But you feel a part of what the varsity was doing, and even though I was sitting in Denver watching the varsity team beat Jacksonville, certainly I was really happy. But I started to feel the pressure of what I knew was going to be expected of us the following year. Now, the following year, I had to make the team and you know try to earn some playing time. We had Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, Steve Patterson. So I wasn't you know I, I wasn't fooling myself that I was going to step in as a sophomore and be a starter but I knew I could fight for playing time and plus I knew playing against those guys every day in practice I would, I would get my behind beat but I would get better and and that's certainly what happened
1: Well when you talk about practices because you see John Wooden in games where he's just sitting he's watching because he always felt like it, the job was done in practice, right? What were those practices like? What was Coach Wooden like in those practices to to help you guys get better and get ready for those games?
0: It was it was absolute controlled warfare. There were times where those four or five days in practice uh, preparation uh, for the games that weekend were tougher than the actual games themselves. The practice, um, the practice, uh, the practices at UCLA. Uh, were like being in a classroom. They were timed to the minute. Uh, you didn't walk from drill to drill. You jogged. If a drill ended on one end of the court and coach wanted to run a drill at the other, he'd blow that whistle and say down at the other end and everybody would would jog down there so there was no wasted time. You know, back in the early 70s, uh the science of sport hadn't evolved the way it is now. And so we didn't have an official water break. <laughs> so we would practice for two and a half hours. And the only way you could get water is if you snuck over and got it, or you caught. You know, what coach was, his attention was elsewhere and you could sneak over and get it. But uh, practices were his classroom and he felt the games were won and lost uh, in practice. And because we were so talented, um, the emphasis on fundamentals, teamwork, conditioning, those practices proved to be um, what Coach Wooden would say: the games are won and lost in practice. That's when all the preparation was done. So by the time we got to the weekend, it was really just an exercise. If we do what we did in practice those four or five days, then you know the outcome would take care of itself.
1: Is it true you really never worked on the opponent, scouted the opponent? It was more all emphasis on, on you guys.
0: Yes, uh, yes, and the reason uh, the reason I say yes and yes is Coach always knew what the other team was going to do, their best players, their best plays. And we might have a drill, uh, a defensive drill, that might emphasize something that the other team does well that we would see. But he would never mention that team by name. There was never a formal scouting session where he would say, OK, USC is going to run the high pick and roll, and they're going to lift punch on the other side. We never did that. The other team was never mentioned. I'll tell you a funny story. My senior year, I'm getting interviewed um, uh, by a writer. Uh, You know, we're undefeated. We're having a great year. We're picked to, you know, obviously win the national championship. And about three quarters of the way through the interview, the guy stops and he looks at me. He goes, "Uh, Larry, you don't know who you're playing this weekend, do you? And I said, no, the name of our opponents never come up in practice. But I guarantee you they know who they're playing this weekend. But that was Coach Wooden's approach. He he never mentioned the other team, um, and we seldom were ever told, if at all, that uh, this wrinkle or this play was something we were going to have to defend. The emphasis every damn practice was on us.
1: Yeah, nineteen seventies. No social media to go on there and see who you're playing. So, <laughs> so you were just worried about yourself. And, and again, a great career. You know, you were there during uh, three national championship years. All, all three years that you played, but. Uh, again, you talked about the pressure. Was there a pressure every time you won to win another one and keep that string going?
0: Not so much of the string. We didn't get – we really weren't made aware of that until my senior year, and we were, I think, at 45 in a row, and 60, you know, was the was the um, record held by USF. Uh, prior to that, you know, people used the old phrase – one game at a time. And, you know, you hear that all the time. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, they just say that. But that's how Coach Wooden, that was the culture at UCLA. You know, we worked hard in practice to become the best team we could become. And Coach had us convinced that he just wanted us to get a little bit better every day. So we never looked ahead. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why he has sustained success for so long. Is because we didn't talk about winning. He never used the word winning, and his only concern was us getting better and getting better and preparing for that next, you know, that next opponent. The pressure that we felt, um, you know, certainly was to keep the tradition going. Um, our fans, you know, our, everyone, the media—they expected us to win because we were the best team. So we were aware of that. But there was a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves because, you know, the team before that had won. The team before that had won. We were expected to win. We certainly felt that, you know, if if we gave it our best shot, we were going to be hard to beat. So it was more of an internal pressure than it was an external pressure.
1: Yeah, you were there again uh, during the time where you had won seven in a row, excuse me, seven national championships in a row. You win three of them. What was it like on campus for you? What was it like for for that team on campus when you're walking around? I mean, you (laughs) kind of have been celebrities on your own campus at that time.
0: You know, to say that um, life was good on campus would be an understatement. We uh, And that was pretty much true throughout, you know, Southern California. Um, You know, we – uh, you know, it, you know, in terms of of, of competing for uh, television time, airtime, popularity, you know, we we had the Lakers, and uh, there were people that felt our fast break was better than the Lakers' fast break. <laughs> and that, that was that was a pretty good team they had Jerry West and Kiel Goodrich, Will Chamberlain. They were pretty good, but uh, it was a it was a lot of fun, and it was a it was a humbling experience. You know, again, Coach Wooden preached modesty and. And so we never got you know full of ourselves or big headed, but it was you know you, I, I I do in my own way kind of know what it feels like to be a little bit of a of a rock star. We uh, yeah, it was it was pretty nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it had to be like you said a rock star at that time when you play for UCLA. So again, eighty nine and one is your record during your three years in the varsity team. You win three national championships. Do you remember the wins of those three national championship games more? Or the loss during that time against Notre Dame back in January of 1971.
0: It's, it's it's funny because you you know you mentioned 89 and and there are more people you know throughout my life you know post UCLA that will say hey you're 89 and one what well, who was the team that beat you I said you you can ask me about 89 games that you want to ask me about <laughs> about the one you know each the 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 one loss. Uh, the only reason it stands out is because, again, it was the only one. And so in the three years that I was under varsity, I only heard Coach Wooden give a speech, a team talk after a loss once. And I, I, I write about it in the book because, you know, a couple of things that he said really stood out to me. But in high school, we finished second uh, in the state. Uh, we didn't win the state championship. Uh, we had a great year, and we were picked to win it. We were number one ranked team in Colorado, but we lost in the state finals. And so until I got to UCLA, I'd never played on a championship team. And each one of those championship teams I cherish. I probably loved the first one because it was the first. The one in 72, um, you know, Walton and Wilkes, Greg Lee, they were sophomores. Our average win margin which is still a record, you know, 52 years later, was 30.3 points per game, so none of our games were close. I celebrated that one. And then in 73, we just had our 50-year reunion for that team. I was the senior captain. And so, you know, when I think back of each championship, they each have a special place because of, you know, what we accomplished during those uh, uh, during that period of time. But, yes, uh, and those do stand much larger than that one loss in South Bend.
1: <laughs> there you go. That's good. That's, that's, that's good to say there. And, and again, you're 89 and one in your three years. Lou Alcindor, 88 and 2. Now Kareem Abdul Jabbar, is is that something that you hold over him and, and bring up when you see him? Never to his face. <laughs> 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 I have much respect for the big
0: fella. I would never say that. Behind his back, I always needle him a little bit. Yeah, Kareem lost two games, only
1: lost to one. There you go. There you go. And, and you mentioned some of the players you play with. And Bill Walton's certainly a personality. How did he challenge Coach Wooden? And how was he with with you guys because again he's a free spirit and and I'm sure that took Coach Wooden a little while to kind of accept that maybe and let him be the person that he was.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Bill Bill challenged Coach um but Bill challenged everybody. Uh Bill was a great teammate and I I I love Bill Walton. I'll tell you a really quick story about him. My senior year was Bill's junior year. And we had just beaten, um, we had just beat Notre Dame to break the 60-game win streak. So we just won that game. And the next weekend we were gonna play USC. So it's pretty good basketball stretch for us. But my birthday was right in between the Notre Dame game and the USC game. So in the locker room, uh, after practice, one of those practice days, Bill announces to the team that everybody's coming over to his house. He had a room in the frat in a frat house. He announced the whole team was coming over to his, uh, uh to his apartment for, um, a brief uh, birthday celebration for Larry farmer. So I said, well, Bill, you know, I, you know, after the training table, I've got a, I've got a date. He said, Hey, she can wait. And everybody once practice ends. Everybody shower quickly, get over the training table eat as fast as you can, and we're going over to my house and celebrate Farmer's birthday. And he stayed after everybody. Everybody ate quickly. Everybody went over to Bill's, and it was just one of those things where we were close on the court, but much, much closer off the court. And uh, we were all there. He organized it, and we laugh about that to, to this day. He was a um, obviously a phenomenal player, but he was even a better teammate. Um, he did challenge coach, but it was coach's program and he could only challenge coach to a point because we all knew that if there was going to be a winner and a loser in a challenge, it was going to be coach Wood.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, he was definitely the face of that program. And so, uh, again, you you help th- this team win 88 straight games dur- during your time. You're part of that. Uh, that can't be something you can't think that's something that's going to ever be broken, is it?
0: No, no. And, you know, when, when I graduated, uh, we had won 75 games in a row. And then the following year, I was uh, the graduate assistant on the staff. I had gotten drafted by the Denver uh, Rockets and the Cleveland Cavaliers, but I went to camp and I didn't make the team. So I came back to UCLA. Coach wouldn't have the graduate assistant position open for me. And they won 13 games before, you know, once again, losing at, at, at Notre Dame. Eighty-eight games in a row, seven national championships in a row, uh, ten championships in twelve years. Um, you know those those accomplishments, um, and probably even more so now because of the way college basketball is structured, where you don't get players staying at one place for four years. You know now with you know players able to transfer and be eligible right away. You know I guess it's hard for these coaches now to keep guys there for two years. Um, but there are a number of factors that, that factor into it. But those accomplishments, I, I can't see those ever being
1: broken. I've done a lot of reading on on Coach Wood and his woodenisms. Uh, failing to prepare, preparing to fail is, is kind of one that that I live by as a broadcaster and, and get ready for these interviews. Uh, yes. You have one that that you kind of have have lived by or one that's really stuck to you. And, and also I've got my, my pyramid of success as well. I'm sure you <laughs> have that somewhere in that house as well. Yes. Yes, I preached this to my kids. And this year I
0: actually coached uh, all girls Catholic school, Woodlands Academy. And I had those girls quoting Coach Wooden. And one of my favorites of all time, you know, is it's amazing how much can be accomplished when no one is concerned over who gets the credit. Um, You know, the title of my book is Role of a Lifetime. And, you know, every great team, sports team that you think of, every great organization, that you think of, you have superstars, you have people that excel, and then you have role players, and those role players have to excel at what they do in order for this thing to all work, certainly at a championship level. And that quote about not being concerned over what you know you do, but be more concerned over what the team does, to me is something that, um, um, that I live by, and that was one that I have quoted, uh, I've coached all over the world and I'm probably sure that every place I've ever been, whether it be Germany or Kuwait, I have players there that can quote Coach Wooden in their own language, and that would be one of them.
1: Another story I've always heard from him, and you know, I worked at Campbell University for a while. He would always come to camps there, and the one thing he would teach campers the first thing would about being, putting hot in their socks, how to put their socks on the right way, because that really affects obviously their feet and how they, they, they're going to perform out there. Is that something that he did with you guys as well?
0: Uh, the, 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 we had a team meeting before the start of each season. And at that team meeting the coach would give uh, you'd have two handouts and on one handout, uh, there was probably a list of 20 things. Uh, the expectations of a UCLA basketball player It had to, you know, do it being in class every day and being on time and, and and, and just everything off the court. And then he had another sheet, another handout, and it probably had about 25 items, and it was the expectations of a UCLA uh, um, basketball player. This all had to do with practice. And so coach would read through each one of these items one by one so there would be, um, you know, no reason that you as a player would not understand what was expected of you off the court in the classroom, and on the court, and during practice, and in the locker room. And then once coach would finish going over the rules and expectations, he was usually doing this behind a podium. He would walk over, sit down, uh, take off his shoe, and his sock, and then he would proceed to show us the correct way to put on your sock so there weren't any wrinkles on the bottom, because, you know, wrinkles on the bottom, you could get blisters, and if you get blisters on your feet, you can't play, Uh, you know, you can't change the direction they can't do any of those things so he would show us the proper way to put on your socks and pull them up nice and snug and taunt and then he showed us the exact proper way to tie your shoes to make sure that you got those laces tied pulled them all the way up and um and tied those shoes properly so you know the first time it happened i was a freshman and we've got all these all americans up here and coaches doing it and you know they're sitting there and they're quiet and the freshmen we're all in the back and we're looking around you, can you believe we're doing this <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, we did that every year during that uh, preseason meeting. He did it every year to show us exactly how to put on our socks and shoes.
1: Yeah, attention to detail certainly worked out when you look at his career. As you said, you you were drafted by the NBA, the ABA, but you elected to to be a member of his staff. Why do that? Why did you not play professionally and instead go into coaching uh, under Coach Wooden?
0: You know that that's another one of the really. I, I think interesting things uh, in 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 the book that I wrote, you know I, I like everybody else. I thought that I would be a an NBA player, an ABA player, and I was drafted. You know I went to UCLA, we won championships, I got a lot of exposure, and I was drafted. Um, when I went to camp at Cleveland, the skill set that they were looking for. Um, was more for a guy that was, uh, in today's terms, would have been a three-point shooter. They had had two guys that were already on no-cut contracts that did exactly that. And my skill set, I was a good rebounder in the fast break, a mid-range shooter, not a long-range shooter. And so when I went to camp, I survived rookie camp. In those days, they drafted 12 rookies. So you had a full week of rookie camp. They cut uh, nine of those rookies and brought three of us back to veteran camp. I survived veteran camp, had a great veteran camp, and then played well in the exhibition season. But I was released uh, three days before the season started. Coach Wooden had been following my progress the whole time I was at Cleveland. Uh, He was calling Bill Fitch, who was the head coach at Cleveland, to check on how Larry was doing. How's he doing? And he kept the graduate assistant coaching position open for me in the event that I didn't make the team. It goes back to what you and I talked about initially about being coachable. You know, I listened to everything he taught me because I, I, I had to do it in order to play. And I think he always felt because of that, that at some point I would make a good coach. And so I wasn't thinking that I was going to start coaching then. I thought my coaching career would start somewhere down the road. But it gave me great experience working on his staff for a year. The following year, I played professional basketball over in Europe. It was a great opportunity for me to play, get paid. I made more money over there than I would have played if I'd stayed in the States, you know, as a seventh round draft choice. And then the following year, when Coach Wooden won his last championship and retired, Gene Barto was hired as head coach. And Gene Barto wanted to hire a guy on his staff that played for Coach Wooden that had coaching experience. And because of that one year of being a GA, that kind of put me in the front of that line and after one year playing professional basketball I was hired at UCLA full time as an assistant coach so it all
1: kind of came together yeah he was looking out for you again as you said you were coachable and and look where it led you because of that and and take us through the the moment when you heard that that coach wooden was going to retire he, 27 years 10 titles still kind of a young guy and and but that he decided to hang it up what what was that like around you know the facility, the offices there. When you heard that this guy, so revered at UCLA, was going to step aside.
0: Yeah, I was. You know, uh, as, as I mentioned, I was uh, in I was in Germany, and my parents called me. We talked every every Sunday, and so we 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 had talked earlier that week. And when Coach Wooden made the announcement, you know, after Saturday's game, my parents called me back, and they said we just heard that Coach Wooden had announced uh, before the championship game that he was going to retire. And I was sad. I mean, I was really sad because, you know, as as coach wouldn't call the guys that play for him, his boys. And we loved it. You know, he would always give us that disclaimer. Now I don't mean it in a negative way. So no coach, we understand that's your way of telling us you love us. We're we're one of your boys or I was one of his boys and he was invincible to me. Um, You know, I, he, he, how could he retire? He wasn't old enough. He wasn't tired. He was still full of vigor. And, you know, I, I remember him every day at practice. Uh, but I was sad when I heard that it was like an era uh, of history uh, was coming to an end. And I had been a part of that. And I was sad, very sad to see that he was going to leave.
1: And I'm sure it had to be a difficult transition. Gene Bartow took over, then it was Gary Cunningham, then Larry Brown and then eventually you as a head coach. But, how tough was it i mean no social media at the time probably was a good thing but uh, I, i'm sure everyone was you know putting you guys up against coach wooden and what he did during his time and and, and nobody can can do what he did no no
0: and, and you're exactly right there was no social media but uh, you know obviously what media there was was focused <laughs> on us and uh, nla being you know a media hub it was I, I was not naive to what was going to be expected of the coach uh, that followed Coach Wooden because, you know, if you if you think of the dynasty as the Frankenstein monster, I was a part of that monster. And then when Coach Bartow took over, you know, now I'm on the other side of that. I'm on the staff that's immediately following Coach Wooden's staff. And Coach Bartow went 52-9, and 52 wins and nine losses, in two years, um, and a lot of universities, they 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 put a statue of you out in front if you go fifty-two and nine. Um, but because he was following Coach Wooden, I don't know if he could have done enough other than win two championships in a row to have satisfied you know those whose expectations um, with ten championships in twelve years had become a little bit I um, say <laughs> distorted. But um, it was tough. But when I became the head coach after Coach Bartow for two years and then uh, Gary, Gunning, Gary Cunningham, who played for Coach Wooden, who was on his staff for 10 years, and then Larry Brown for two years, um, you know, I knew what to expect. I knew what was going to be expected of me. So there was always going to be pressure, but I wasn't naive to the fact that I knew what kind of winning was expected. Um, and, you know, that that was – that still holds true to this day. Now, a lot of time has passed. And so, you know, the coaches that have since come into the program aren't measured necessarily by that same yardstick. But the expectation, because of those four letters, is still very, very high. And we like it that way. And the players that come there and the coaches that are there now, Coach Cronin, he knows that. He says it all the time. We know what's expected. (laughs) And that's the
1: way it should be. Yeah, you're still UCLA. so but. Again, three coaches in six years. You're elevated 1981-82. Any hesitation of becoming the head coach?
0: None. I was 30 years old, and, you know, when you're 30, you think you can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And, you know, even with my lack of experience, I had seven years of assistant coaching experience, seven years. Um but I had grown up in that system. I had grown up around UCLA basketball. So for a naive, inexperienced 30-year-old guy, I probably was as well prepared to be the next coach there as anybody else, you know, fitting that, uh, that description. And looking back, uh, I would do and make the same decision now that I did then. Be a lot more nervous about it now So I'm 72 years old and I know a lot more now than I, know I do then. But what a great experience. You know, I I think of the day that I accepted the head coaching job at UCLA. It was 12 years, 12 years after I was in Coach Wooden's office as a recruit. I went from being offered jelly beans 12 (laughs) years earlier to sitting in that seat, knowing that now that office was my office. It still gives me goosebumps when I think about it
1: and obviously at the time as well you're the first black head coach of any sport right at UCLA a school that produced Jackie Robinson and what he did to break the color barrier in, in major league baseball uh, was that something that you you know a point of pride for you or or was it also something that was maybe a challenge for you to to be that and and you know kind of be that guy that that maybe people looked up to um, you know
0: there 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 was already you know many built in Pressures and expectations. I knew because of UCLA's history that them hiring me uh, as a black, as the first black coach in any sport there was something that they took great pride in doing. You know, one of the reasons that Kareem Abdul Jabbar decided to go to UCLA was because of, of Jackie Robinson and Arthur Ashe and Dr. Ralph Bunch. UCLA had been a trailblazer in that way. I looked up to people like George Rabbling and John Thompson, Fred Snowden, who was at Arizona, John Chaney, who was at Temple. Those were um, black coaches that had come before me. None of them were um, given programs that had a winning tradition or a winning history, but they built those programs. And I always felt because of the success they had, it also made it easier for UCLA to make that decision about me. And so when I got that job, I'm inheriting a program that, you know, not only had a winning tradition, but it had the winning tradition. And I certainly didn't want to disappoint on a number of levels. But I did know that the way I carried myself, the job that I did, would reflect um, and maybe open up other opportunity for other opportunities for minority coaches and black coaches, just as those who had come before me had done for me. First day that I got the head job at UCLA, I wrote those four. Um, black coaches that I just mentioned, I wrote them each a letter, and I thank them for the path that they set in place uh, for coaches like me to follow.
1: Yeah, some incredible names you mentioned there: George Raveling, uh, again one of the greatest, uh, certainly in, in college basketball. John Thompson, John Shady, as well. And so, again, for you, it's three years there, uh, a, a successful run. You sign a two-year extension, but then you resign after that. And I know you talk about this in the in the book, but but what led to that? What led to you? Deciding, okay, this is the time to, to move on. You know, I I,
0: I love the experience there. I wanted to continue. I knew what was expected. I thought at the time that I needed a few more tools in place. Chancellor Young, who I love to this day, believed in me, He trusted in me. It was his decision to hire me in the first place, um, you know, as a 30-year-old guy. And so when he gave me the contract extension, I just wanted a few more things that, uh, that we needed in place in terms of recruitment and, and academics. And so when those things were, um, and, and you mentioned it, I, I go into great detail in the book. When I saw that those things might probably happen, but they weren't going to happen when I needed them to happen, I did not want to be at the program and not have success. And I didn't think that I could do it under the the circumstances in which I was going to have to operate. And so it broke my heart. You, you, You talk about a difficult decision. One of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life, you know, with two years added on to my contract, I essentially had a new three year contract and I agreed to it. And then I had a weekend to really kind of kick it around in my head. And then I decided that, you know, um, unlike the other coaches that had preceded me that lasted two years, I had beaten them all by three, and it was probably time to leave. I wrestled with that decision for yeah. about 10 years, and it wasn't until I went back to UCLA 10 years later that I knew then that I would made the right decision to leave when I did.
1: And, and you didn't leave coaching. You, you moved on Weber State, uh, eventually Loyola Chicago as well. Uh, What do you remember about some of those stops and and, and some of the high points during those times for you? You know, every
0: place that I've coached, I've been able to take what I've learned at UCLA, uh, the foundation of the fundamentals, uh, different aspects of the pyramid of success, uh, a a lot of the woodenisms that we we talked about. And, you know, whether it be at Weber State, um, I coached the Kuwait national team after the Gulf War. I was an assistant coach with the Golden State Warriors. Um, I had an opportunity to coach at Loyola of Chicago. I've coached in every time zone. And the thing that I've enjoyed the most, um, I love practice. I love teaching in practice. Again, I get that from Coach Wooden. That's a part of my foundation, the preparation of practice. And then understanding that basketball sport is just a vehicle to teach young men and this year, uh, young girls, life lessons, things that will prepare them for life. And through basketball, just like Coach Wooden did for all of his boys, sharing elements of the pyramid of success and talking about things that you learn through sport that will help you be successful in life. I think each place that I've stopped or that I've coached or been a part of, I've been able to do that. Um, again, thanks to him, I've been able to share that, to pass that knowledge, uh, pass it forward, and and so each place that I've coached, I've enjoyed doing it because of what I've been able to what I've, what I've been able to share.
1: Loyola well, Chicago, I've got to ask you: Was Sister Jean there at the time when, when you were at the with the Chicago?
0: Yes, she was. Sister
1: Jean was in her first year of
0: being the team chaplain. My no, first no. year as head coach, so we were both kind of rookies <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. And she would say, "Oh, you! She what, what a what a nice person." And she did. Now her prayers have gotten better because she's incorporated a lot more scouting reports into her prayers. <laughs> but when she first started, her pregame prayers were so. I mean, I told her one time we're in the locker room, and, and Sister Jean prayed that we win the game. And after she finished praying, I said, "Sister Jean, the team had left the locker room." I said, "Sister Jean." You can't ask the good Lord for us to win because maybe the other coach is praying that they win. She goes, yeah, I can pray that way because the good Lord listens to me. Oh, it was so (laughs) funny. It was so funny. Oh, what a great person. Just an absolute great person.
1: Yeah. You've got a book out. She's got a book out as well. At at 103 years old, Sister Jean is, is still a star there with uh, Loyola Chicago. Well, again, uh, stops also for you in Hawaii, Western Michigan a couple of times, a year here in our state, in North Carolina, where the NC State is as well. And then, like you said, you're retired, but you were telling us off the air before we got started, you're never really retired, so you're doing some (laughs) high school coaching now. But uh, is this game just – just always involved with this game, it looks like. It it becomes a
0: part of you, and because it is bigger than just, you know, the 40 minutes that the game goes on, the relationships that you – uh, create and nurture with the players. Uh, uh, this year, I'd never coached girls before. I have a daughter and, you know, I'd certainly work with her in basketball, but I'd never coached girls before and certainly never coached at the high school level. And I got so much satisfaction out of teaching those girls. Our, our, our upperclassmen were all juniors, so they're 16-year-old girls. And at the end of the season, to hear them say things like, be quick, but don't hurry, Ah, uh, be on time when time's involved. Uh, uh, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Like you like the one that you like. I'm hearing these 16-year-old girls say that, and uh, it just—I mean—you uplifted my spirits. And I know up in heaven, Coach Wooden is smiling because his legacy is continuing.
1: Yeah, you certainly are probably one that maybe the closest to his legacy right now. And and you mentioned—you know—the first time you met him. Do you remember the last time you you had a chance to see him before he did pass away and and, and leave us?
0: Yes, yes. Um I was I was coaching uh I was coaching at the University of Hawaii and I had called a coach to check on him. Um and in those days as his health was declining, uh Tony Spino, uh, uh, a great trainer uh at UCLA, he also worked for the Milwaukee Bucks. But Tony worked at UCLA And the athletic department decided to assign Tony, although he was still on contract at UCLA, they assigned him full time to take care of Coach Wooden. And so when I wanted to check on Coach Wooden's health, I would call Tony, and Tony was literally staying with Coach 24 hours a day. I would call Tony just to find out how Coach was doing. Well, on this particular day, I called Tony, and uh, he answered his cell phone. He goes, hey, Larry, I'm just getting Coach Wooden in the car. He just had a doctor's appointment. So I said, okay, Tony, well, I'll call you back. He goes, no, 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 hold on. And so Tony hands Coach Wooden the phone. And Coach Wooden says, Larry, how you doing, fella? And I said, Coach, I'm great. Coach, how, how are you? And we had a brief conversation. And at the end of the conversation, Coach told me he loved me. And I told him that I loved him. I'm, I'm getting choked up. And um, Tony called me back later. And he said that Coach was having a really good day that, that day. And he didn't want that day to go by since I had called without me having a chance to talk to coach. And that's why even though he was in the middle of putting him in the car, getting him settled as they were leaving the hospital to go back to uh, the condo, he put him on. And that was the last time that I I talked to him. And the last thing uh, that we said to each other was that uh, um, excuse me, we loved each other.
1: And and again, you know, from the outside, people (laughs) see the wins, they see the championships, but from the inside, you guys, and, and what he meant to you, it, it seems like it's it's so special. And, uh, and certainly, I appreciate you sharing that story with us here today. And and he was a good player during his days at, at Purdue as well. Did, did he ever hop into to practice and kind of show you how to do things? I mean, again, he was still young enough that I'm sure he showed you guys a few things. No, you know, he no, he never, he never, he never hopped into
0: practice. But you know, we we we'd heard that he was a three time All American and. When there were certain drills, uh, especially at the beginning of the year, uh, that coach would introduce, and he would introduce a drill, and then he would let us do the drill, and then the next day we would come back through repetition, and then he would start to really hone in on the fundamentals, and then we would do it again and do it again. And so that's how he taught drills. Well, there would be certain drills where coach would jump in, like if it was a drill where he wanted to show how to dribble handoff or a a, a real crisp post-exchange and he might jump in and his footwork would be precise and he would you know we'd have the ball and it would be you know in triple threat position and that two-inch pass was perfect and he would jump in and he would demonstrate but it was always you know just a few little things but you know to actually get in a drill and to all I participate he never did that but we could always tell because of the way he handled himself in the ball that he knew what he was doing
1: as you watch games now, UCLA, other teams as well, do you see what he was teaching then still in play now or, or has a game evolved and changed that much to, to where somebody like him, maybe the game wouldn't translate for him?
0: You know, with the way players dribble the ball now and, and they're allowed to carry and the ball come to rest and put the hand on the side, as you can tell, I'm, I'm really annoyed with this one. Uh, he, that would not have set well with him. It gives the offense such a great advantage when you can control the ball, not with your hand on the top, like we had to do in the old days, but when you can put it on the, on the side. But if you think of the way we describe players today, the really great players today that we all love to watch, the word versatile is now becoming popular again. You know, basketball for a while was very specialized and everybody had to be able to do specific things. And now to be versatile, um, and what does versatility mean? Well, you can shoot it from the inside, shoot it from the outside. You can dribble, you can pass it, you can score with either hand. These were fundamentals. These were the things that Coach Wooden taught and preached. And so the game from that standpoint of being versatile, being fundamentally sound, making great decisions, that is what he teach. That's, I mean, that's what he taught. Um, the way the game is played now where um, a lot of really good teams focus on the screen and roll action. And because of the three point line, the floor is spaced and there's a lot of standing and and, and waiting for the ball. That would not have been something that he would have liked because he liked movement uh, created problems for the defense, but the pure Fun and joy of teaching the fundamentals and how to dribble, pass, and shoot to be in great shape and to play as a team. He would very much be uh, a great coach in, in in this era.
1: That said, you guys in this era, how how would your team stack up? Again, your three time national champion, eighty nine and one record, your three years on the varsity team. How would those teams stack up to today's game?
0: As long as Bill Walton and Jamal Wilkes were healthy,
1: <laughs> we would have been fine. <laughs> There you go. That's a, that's a good two to start with, right? Those hey, two, you as the role guy?
0: Yeah, they were healthy. They, we would have been fine. Now, if, if hey, we had any problem with them, some of these teams is with their quickness and athleticism, <laughs> they might have given us a problem. But I'll take my chances with those two guys.
1: Larry, again, this is this has been so much fun here, uh, again, as a fan of John Wooden as I am, to hear the stories from you from the inside. And I know you talk about those in your career in your book. Uh, again, tell us about your book. It's out already now. Where can people get that?
0: Yes, you can uh, get the book at Barnes and Noble's, uh, Amazon, um, Walmart, all the major outlets. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought long and hard about writing it. Um, it took two years to write, but I thought about doing it for 40 years, ever since I left UCLA. And I thought it would be a good read for sports fans, basketball fans. Uh, human interest. Um, I devote one chapter, uh, one small chapter, to the importance of being a role player. I think any high school coach or high school kid or college coach would want to read that and understand, um, especially with the transfer rules being the way it is, Um, you know, when you make a decision, um, how to stick that decision out and, and fight your way through it. But, you know, because of the the, the view that I had of, of UCLA and the dynasty being a player, um, winning three championships, and then immediately being on the staffs uh, that followed. It's a unique insight into uh, the inner workings of, of UCLA and, and um, the stories that I tell. I think people will learn a lot more about a lot of my teammates, certainly about Coach Wooden, the relationships. And it was a great ride. Um, and I it really enjoyed sharing the story about what it looked like to be a part of the, uh, the UCLA dynasty.
1: Yeah. You get Bill Walton and Jamal Wilkson involved with that as, as well. Uh, again, you're a great embodiment of not just UCLA, but coach Wood and what he was. And, and it makes sense that you would write a book like this, having played for him and coached with him as well. And uh, certainly those girls don't know how lucky they are to have you as, as your head <laughs> coach, man. As, as you said, you know, the, the, lessons that you're giving them, they're, they're giving it back to you. So uh, you certainly making a difference. And I can't thank you enough for, for sharing such amazing stories with us here today.
0: Oh, super. Thank you, Michael. It was great. Great. Had a lot of fun.
1: Well, another great guest, Larry Farmer. We appreciate his time and the tremendous stories he had to share with John Wooden, especially if you're a fan of John Wooden, like I am, I'm sure you appreciated that. If you did like this episode, be sure to like it, be sure to subscribe as well to our podcast, more great guests, more great stories coming your way soon in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. So again, our thanks to Larry Farmer, Do check out his book as well if you want to hear more on Farmer and his role with UCLA, his relationship as well with John Wooden. Until next time, once again, we'll see you next time for another edition of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.